Welcome everybody to another episode of Confessions of a Keyboardist. I'm your host, Amy Frederick, and I'm here today with Eric Bicalis. Hey, Eric. Thank you for pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Thank you for instructing me just before I hit the record button. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like preparation, right? <laughs> I'm infamous for um, mispronouncing <laughs> names. Oh my goodness. And I've done it with people I've known for years and years, so it's it's nothing personal. But I'm, no, I realize I'm, it. <laughs> so glad I got it right. And thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I mean, I I've known you for a while, but you know, I don't, I don't know if we've ever really just sat down and just chatted about life as a musician or uh, as other things. I, I have a really twisted kind of a journey that I've been through, and it's. It's at an odd place now, but it's just uh, part of the journey. Isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very unpredictable. And, um, boy, it can have the the highest highs and the lowest lows, at least in in my experience. um, Sometimes it's just hard to interpret where you really are at and where you are headed. Um, Sometimes it's more clear than other times. I I had goals at times, and now I'm not even really sure what my goals are. I, you know, I... I kind of like to the idea of being able to support myself. Uh, <laughs> call that crazy, but <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> well, um, gosh, I don't even know where to start. I'm just, you know, I'm so intrigued by this intro that. Um, <laughs> do we jump in there, or do we do chronological, or? Um... Well, I can tell you that I started probably when you started, like when six or seven or something, and yeah. picking out melodies on the piano. But I, my family was all musical. Uh, everybody played. Nobody did it for a living. Um, my dad was a psychiatrist, and my mother was a social worker. But they both played four hands, and they only played classical music. They played duets. They played duets all the time. Your mom and dad. Yeah, it was That's really so and I, sweet. And then I had a brother and two sisters, uh, and everybody. It was required to take piano. That that was for starters, and then if you wanted to, you could take another instrument. Okay. Was in my family also. All of us took piano. Oh, okay. Um, do you remember some of the duets that they played, like composers? Yeah, they played. Um, they played forehand reductions of some of the symphonies, um, uh, Brahms. Oh. I remember them doing a lot of Brahms. Oh my gosh! And um, that's hard. It is really hard. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do it. Um, but they they were really. My mom was a reader. My dad played by ear, but uh, he was really a brilliant guy, and he. He didn't seem to have any trouble reading, even though he liked playing by ear. He liked his thing was playing like whorehouse piano. He really liked that. You know, <laughs> but he, he just liked banging around and doing stuff. And gotcha. he was a writer too. He wrote a lot of music. Like honky tonk, you mean? Ragtime? Uh, when he was uh, barrel doing, house. No, not really necessarily in that style. He just liked to play in that style. But he could write different things and when he was doing his psychiatric stuff at uh, Menninger's in Topeka, Kansas, he and he and a writing partner of his invented this thing called the Freudian Follies and it was an actual production that they put on and it was the the music was great and the lyrics were brilliant it was all psychiatric jargon but it was written a la like Tom Lyra Wow. You know, and I, I, I'm a huge Tom Lear fan. I just 
I love that stuff, poisoning pigeons in the park and all that great stuff. Larry Van Lone was talking about that in his episode. He is a great player and and a really neat guy. He's a Kansas City guy like me. Okay. Yeah, that's where I met him. Oh, okay. You guys met there? Wow. So you have history with him. Yeah. And your dad is writing lyrics and tunes? He was doing the music and, and his partner was doing the lyrics. Okay. And he's in school to become a psychiatrist. Yeah, you have to do like eight, eight years of of training, um, and and the best part was that they actually recorded these Freudian follies <laughs> on uh, like they, they're like acetate discs. I think they were like seventy eights, seventy eight records. Oh yeah. wow! Do you still have them? Yeah, we transferred them to cassettes, and now I have a whole thing of cassettes. I've been meaning to transfer to CDs. Another thing in my life that I'm still waiting to get around to yeah it's takes it's very time-consuming to do all that stuff oh yeah but it's so great that you have it (laughs) so anyway um i grew up in that atmosphere so my house uh, before school was like a conservatory and everybody was practicing wow um how many siblings um i had two i have two sisters still and my i had a brother who was six years older than i was he was the oldest and he uh, he was a brilliant musician, but just classical. And then the two girls um, who live in Kansas City and Palm Springs uh, are much more into theater. So they really got into that end of the spectrum. Uh, and and cool. I was the only one who, who decided to tough it out as a musician. But it wasn't my first choice. I thought it was going to be a doctor because I felt like that was a sort of a good respectable thing to do yeah and it it was a good investment and you know it was a good way to make a living and it wasn't until I actually got to college that I realized that I don't want to mess with eyeballs and stuff like that (laughs) I I don't it's not me you know and and I went through a period where I really did not know what I wanted to do and um, that ended at the beginning of the second year, I decided to enroll in the music school at the University of Kansas, where I was, and okay. um, do what I do best, which was music. Um, I just didn't really understand how I was ever going to make a living doing it, but that was kind of beside the point. When you're that age, you're not really thinking about the same kind of things. Yeah, you know? right. You were just thinking, this is my dream and I have to... I have well, to achieve it, or this is what I do best? Yeah, or? I couldn't think of another criterion. That, well, what do you do best? What are you most interested in? And music was my life when I was in college. I, I listened to music all the time. The British Invasion was on. It had been going for a while, and the Beatles were doing all their really crazy you know, stuff that every record was different. Yeah. And, and that was just one thing that was going on. It was so diverse during the 70s. Yeah. It was just... It, it was just blown apart with stuff that that you, you could I mean Mahavishnu Orchestra yeah. um, Chick Corea and I had had a brush with some jazz stuff because Kansas City where I grew up is a big jazz town so yes um, when I was very young I guess junior high school I got turned on to um, Ramsey Lewis yeah, he he had the in crowd out, and, right? And when I heard that, there was no turning back. It was like I've got to learn that note for note, 
and I did, and I still play it. Um, I did the same thing with a Herbie Mann record because I play flute as my second instrument. Me too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was my minor in college. Oh, how about that? Okay, so um, Herbie Mann was like no nobody else at that point. Um, I think Hubert Laws was not quite on the scene as big as Herbie at that point. Um, and it was like one of these guys, Tito Puente or uh, Mango Santa Maria, mm-hmm. had a, a big band with, uh, with, and Hubert Laws was in that, and all these incredible players that played for him. But I started getting... You know, I started getting influenced by, by all these people, and I, I taught myself to improvise. There was no other way really to do it back then. Yeah, yeah. So, what's um the top three? I don't know uh, memories of teaching yourself how. What did like? What did it require? Silence, peace and quiet, good mood, um, experimentation, cop imitation. You mean to to teach yourself mm-hmm. how to play, how to, like how it? to improvise? Yeah. Um. Well, I guess you needed to have something that you wanted to learn how to do. So the best thing is to have some kind of a goal or something that you can that you want to learn to emulate. So for me, that was you know Ramsey Lewis and his style, and it was also on flute Herbie Mann and his style. Um, I love the Afro-Cuban stuff, but just the way he put his notes together and improvised over the chord changes, and I didn't even really understand chord changes. I was still in middle school. Uh, I did. I could play chords, and I, I guess I could probably tell you what one was, but I didn't. I couldn't tell you the proper way of building one. Right. So um, I just heard the sounds on the record, and I wanted to be able to emulate those things. So it was. Put the needle back on the record. Put the needle back until all my records, my favorite records, were all destroyed. So I've had three or four copies of all my favorite records because I always destroyed them yeah. in learning how to play. And then when the tape recorder became available to me, then that was a whole new level of being able to listen to things and and go back and check it out. Of course, now mm-hmm. it's so easy for anybody to. I mean, you can get yes. that little program, Amazing Slow Downer. I have it. <laughs> I do yes. too, and I and every now and then I pull it out and use it on something that either yes. I just can't seem to un- hear what is going on, or you know, and, and I slow it down, and it really helps. Mm-hmm. It really helps. I wish I'd had that when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, um, what if the song was slightly in the wrong key, <laughs> or like a, a semitone in between? You know, <laughs> how did you manage that? Just, how did you know that your ear was getting really good? I mean, it, yeah, back, it requires. Well, back then, when when I first started doing it, if it was slightly like maybe in the studio, it had been VSO'd. Mm-hmm. Um, just had to tough it out. Yes. There wasn't any really fixing it. Now I, I can't complain like somebody who has perfect pitch. It didn't bother me like that. Like it was like fingernails on a blackboard. But right. it it is a drag when it's very close but not quite there in pitch, and and then you sit down to the piano and it's like. Ooh, it doesn't translate exactly right because you're. But you know what? You get better at doing that. Yeah. And sometimes now, uh, I have to work out a piece, and they want it in a different key. And because I have the thing on a CD or something, uh, and I listen to it on a CD, it's in the. But they needed a minor third higher, 
So sometimes now I'm, it, it's easier for me to just work it out in the new key. I can tell when I've got the relationships right. Yes, yes. Um, Meaning the intervals. The intervals. Yeah. Know. Yeah, it's easier for me now than it was back then. But you know, it, it takes a while to kind of get stop gritting your teeth and just sort of go with it. <laughs> right. So you're a middle school kid, though, that is transcribing things um, off of records, Ramsey Lewis, and et cetera. Herbal well, Man. I really got a dose of transcription when I got to Belmont, and, and Belmont was my my second college experience. So you know, I was when I was college age, I I had all that, but the problem with, with uh, music back then for me, at least this one school, was that they didn't offer jazz. And they didn't, in fact, you went right from uh, studying maybe Impressionism, you went right into postmodern, so you're into Milton Babbitt and, and, mm -hmm. and John Cage and all these, and, and I just, I couldn't get my mind around it. I, could, I couldn't figure out what I'd ever want to do with this stuff. What, why is this even important? Why are we wasting our time with this crap when I want to be learning how to play jazz, I want to learn more classical, I want to learn stuff that makes sense to me. I want to perform for kids my own age. That's just where I was when I was in school. Well, sure, yeah. So I eventually quit. I didn't finish school. I quit after two years of the music school. Okay. Um, of course, I was thrown out of the practice rooms repeatedly and that didn't help really <laughs> thrown out it was yeah for playing you know boogie woogie and stuff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they really it was a stuffy school i mean oh. they're not like that anymore i think they're they're really a whole different music program oh, now wow 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 there's nothing available back then in the in the late 60s early 70s besides maybe berkeley mm. and i didn't have it together to know that I should have gone to Berkeley. So I went to the school where, the state school. Yeah, yeah. You know. Anyway, um, that led to other things. When I quit school, I joined a band uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, and it was really a good band, seriously good. And we, we got a large regional following. We wanted to try to get a record deal. And through the pursuit of a record deal, uh, we met a guy, named Mike Post, you know, who later became, he was a successful record producer. He produced Classical Gas, Mason Williams. Gotcha. And uh, he was did... Was he in Kansas at the time? No, he was in L.A. Okay. But we were trying to, we were trying to get a record deal, so we went out to Los Angeles and we, uh, we, we did a week at the Starwood Club in Hollywood to try to attract some attention. And Mike oh, was nice. one of the guys who was, would step up to the plate, you know, and say, okay, well, I think you guys have something. Um, to make a long story short, it didn't really pan out, but he and I made good friends. And we did a number of recording sessions with him. What kind of stuff were you playing? All originals? or All original. And what's, what uh, genre would you say? Well, it was. <laughs> we, we were about so that genre, we were so but. behind the times, but we just every the whole industry was going to singles, you know, in three and a half minute songs, and we were playing these ten minute epic things with improvisations that were totally self indulgent. But it was great music, and the lyrics were great, and the songs were great. Two of the guys in the band were kind of they were our chief songwriters and, and vocalists, and they were amazingly good 
and uh, my best friend, uh, who's a drummer, a brilliant drummer, he and I made up the other half of the group, and we were kind of the instrumentalists of the group. Um, and together, it just we had something that I've never been able to even approach in any other band I've ever been in, and, and I've been in a lot of them. Isn't that weird? It is really weird. I, you know, we all recognize it as being a very magical thing for all four of us. And uh, do you ever play together? Sense? We we did. <laughs> this is really weird, but we you know we had our brief moment. You know, it was about two and a half, three years of existence, and then we all had to you know go our separate ways and carry on. But forty years after the fact, we got inducted into the Kansas Musicians Hall of Fame. That's so nice. Well, it is nice, and um, we decided that we'd get back together and see if we could still play together. So my drummer buddy and I were still in the music business, and only he was more in the in academia. He was like the head of the drum, the percussion department at um, Arizona University. Okay. And uh, the other two guys, uh, one of them was sort of strumming a guitar, but he was a drug counselor, and the other guy went into preaching. Wow. And, and I gotta say, he was really good at doing that when he was in the band. He did all our front work, and he was brilliant. Um, he could get the crowd yeah. right where he wanted them. He was just—he was just exceptional. Yeah. So, but we got back together after forty years, and we actually played a set, and it was pretty good. It was really fun. Ah, so it's sort of like um, a family, a band, really does have chemistry. It's oh my god, yeah. <laughs> or lack thereof. Uh huh. Uh huh. What was that, the name of this band? Sanctuary. Okay. It was called Sanctuary, and we had a, you know, we still had, we did one record that was kind of done uh, homespun, and uh, we had it pressed into records before we met Mike Post, and, and there were a few of them out there, and I get people on the internet asking me, still, they've tracked me down and tried to find a copy of that record, because we had a Mellotron. I was just going to ask you what kind of keyboard parts you played. Well, back then... Um, my thing was I wanted to have an acoustic piano like what you've got here like a but a smaller acoustic piano I wanted the acoustic piano sound but there were and I found after really looking hard that there were a couple of imported pianos you could buy that that were cut down lightened and they had even um you know pickups inside of them okay the trouble is you had to tune them so I had to learn how to tune. What? And yeah, I bought a Con Strobe tuner, and I taught myself to tune. Oh wow! Well, I don't think I was very good at it, but um, really but hard. I was good enough to just get us by, and um, and we had a Mellotron. Wow! And the Mellotron was in that day and age was absolutely jaw dropping because nobody had ever heard uh, a string section coming out of a big PA with echo and. It was just, you know, whether we were doing strings or brass instruments, any of the stuff that the Mellotron could do. And it was a, such an unreliable instrument <laughs> and so difficult, like in the wintertime especially, because we'd, we'd be loading our stuff in and out of a trailer, and it would take three hours just to thaw it out. What? So it would stabilize. What? Oh, wow. Okay, so, wow, okay. 
that, that makes it sound like there's water in it. There's no water in it. There better not be, but <laughs> but there's a motor in it. You know, it's motor. it's motor driven, like an old B three or something. It's got you know? oil that keeps it. Yeah, running. and and the sounds are actually pre recorded onto this recording tape that came from England so it doesn't fit any tape recorders in this country and you take this entire rack out and there's one tape for every note and you put it in place and screw it down and when you engage a, a key you've got seven or eight seconds of that note before it, it stops then you got to let up on the note and it snaps back like a window shade that's awesome and that's how it works yeah, so you when you hold a chord, like a pad, one note would come up, then another note would come up, then the third note would come up, and you would just alternate your fingers. Okay. So this is a bit of a technique to learning how to get around on it. Cool. Um, how did you amplify that? Did you mic it? Well, we had this big, huge PA. One of the things that was cool about this band, we had a, an investor who was really a neat guy, and he, he bought us the Mellotron, and he bought us a huge PA system. It was a really professional... PA with you know fiberglass speaker boxes like 16 of them and we had a sound man who did lights and sound and he really knew what he was doing he's still doing it for profession and uh, it was it, it was really a hard-hitting band I gotta say I mean it was just we had a lot of devotees you know in our our fan base, but um, that is really cool. What was the make of the piano? I just have to ask you. Oh, I had two different ones. I started out with one, an Irish piano called a Lawrence Audio. Okay. And I never heard of that. Yeah, unfortunately for for that piano, the keys were made out of plastic, and I would actually break them. And you know, my technique was not what it is now, and and I played pretty darn hard. Yeah. And back then, it was harder to be heard, and yes, um, I'm sure, for, especially. Piano player. Oh yeah. So then the Lawrence audio pretty much, you know, but it was cool because you unscrewed the keyboard and it folded down into the body of the instrument. You put a cover over the whole thing and it's on wheels. You just load it into the truck. Uh, the other one's called a Nordiska. No, that, yeah, that's a Nordiska. That's Swedish, wow. and and it was a little tiny blue piano that I think it. Whoa. It even had three strings per note for some of it, wow. but it was certainly not a full keyboard. And uh, it had a pickup system in it that was really cool. You could balance it, and it sounded pretty cool. It was it was better than the Lawrence Audio for me, and you didn't break strings and keys on it as easily. I wonder what Nord means in Sweden, Swedish, because now they have the Nord keyboard, you know, Nordiska. I wonder if it's similar. I don't know. We'd have to... Yeah, we'd, we'd have to consult the pros. <laughs> but that's really cool. I've never heard of either one of those. Well, ever. they were. I bought them both in Minneapolis. I lived in Kansas City, but we drove to Minneapolis where you could see one and play it. That's the only place they were imported. Just like the Mellotron, the only place you could get it was somewhere in Texas, I think Houston or something. Wow. So. It's crazy. Yeah, there wasn't such widespread distribution of these instruments back then. Yeah. So it was really um, special to have it. Yeah. But now everything's so different. Um, nothing impresses people live anymore except the actual, if the band sounds great and the singers are in tune mm -hmm. and everything, and, and everybody is like really balanced and, and happening. That I think that still gets people off 
-hmm. but uh, to hear strings and horns and all that stuff, it's no big deal. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? Our ears are adjusted to all that. Oh, yeah. Wow. But that's um, that's amazing. So that, that kind of propels you into being friends with Mike Post, and, uh, that, and, and that ended up making you move to L.A.? Or? That, was, that was a seminal point in my career, um, meeting Mike Post, because he was a guy who's not much older than me, but but he was a real mover and shaker, and he was he had already been Andy Williams' conductor by age 24, Whoa. and he had produced several hit songs, and he produced Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 album, um, and loads of other stuff, and so he was a big time record producer, and everybody in Hollywood knew who he was, and I met him. Um, again, he he didn't. It, the chemistry just wasn't quite right between this band and and Mike and and we were sort of on our last legs. We really it was like a moment of desperation for us. We either you know we're gonna make something happen this time around, or we're gonna have to break up. So Mike and I made friends, and he said, you know, you ought to think about becoming a studio musician. And I said, yeah, I want to be that. What is it? And uh, he said, well, you, you play on people's records for a living. You know, you, you just have to learn to play in all styles. You have to really get your time together. Your, your time, your intonation, your, your being able to separate genres. And... He said, why don't, you, why don't you just go back to Kansas City and save your money and practice really hard doing that stuff, you know, getting all that together for a year or two, and then move out to L.A. and I'll help you. Whoa. And I knew that was an incredible offer, but I, I still gloat about how incredible that was for any kid to have somebody successful take an interest in them. Yes. So that opened up. Yes an entire career for me. Um, who knows where I would be if it weren't for that, for his, you know, support. And he was true to his word, too. I, I took the full two years and woodshed, and I mean really hard. I'd practiced five, eight hours a day, mm -hmm. took lessons from John Elliott, who was Pat Metheny's teacher. Everybody in Kansas City studied with John. Everybody who wanted to learn jazz studied with John. Was he a piano player? Yeah, really good one, but an ex extraordinary teacher because he had a he had a an approach. Nobody, there was no other approach. I mean, you could go by Lydian chromatic concept, you know, George Russell or some <laughs> something like that. It was really weird, and and you had to really figure out how to make it work for you. But John Elliott had an approach. So, are you talking about was that a book? But you mentioned no, say. but I have the the John Elliott Bible. I mean, that he, he wrote in a spiral notebook for me every week, and he gave me a new lesson. And I have this whole book. And um, do share, tell as much as you want about this approach. Was it like um, technical, theoretical, practical? <laughs> he he made sure that you, you. I mean, everybody that came to him was not a beginner. So everybody kind of knew how to play their instrument. So he started in with some theoretical things like playing um, the scale tone sevenths that we were talking about. Um, so learning how to play your scale tone sevenths in all keys. Everything had to be done in all 12 keys. So you're saying, uh, I'm sitting here at the bottom of the piano. Is that what yeah. you mean? 
Yeah, exactly. That was the key You're just doing triads, you know. Okay. But, but we would start right in with, with seventh chords. Okay. And because you sort of were expected that you knew about your triads. So we started in with seventh chords. We'd learn the scale tone things. And then we would learn about suspensions. And we'd learn about proper notation. How do you notate this chord? How do you voice it? Okay. Uh, what are a couple ways of voicing? What scales could you use over it okay. to, to improvise? These were all bits of knowledge that I don't know how else I could ever figure it out except just by ear listening to records. But um, but he really helped me a lot, and I know a lot of people that studied with him. Um, I did this for two years, and I saved my money, bought an old van, put all my belongings in it, <laughs> and I moved out to California. And Mike remembered you? Mike remembered me. He said, well, come on over and hang out with me, and we'll talk about stuff. And we talked, and, and I'd hang out with him, and, and he, only things had changed for him a little bit. He partnered up with a guy named Pete Carpenter, and they were doing, they were doing um, television shows. They were scoring television shows. And he had a couple of shows. I think he had one called Baba Black Sheep. Um, and he had one called Toma. And he had The Rockford Files. The Rockford Files was a huge hit. Yes. And, and the theme of The Rockford Files was a number one record. Yeah. So back in that era, you could, well, Mike was probably the only guy who ever did this. Maybe there were others after him. But he actually had such cool sh stuff that he would write for the shows, for the themes, that they'd become hit records on the radio. Good Lord. So he wrote the theme for the He wrote the, the theme. Okay. And he got a Grammy for that and wow. all kinds of awards. Um, but then he did went on to do uh, L.A. Law and Magnum P.I. Um, and just a whole host of shows. And he basically said, look, I, I can... He got me a lot of session work, you know, mostly like demo stuff artists that he was bringing along that he was going to produce because he was still a record producer. Okay. He'd have me work with them and learn their material. I'd get to go into the studio sometimes and, and play on the record. Other times I'd be replaced by one of the A-team guys. And I those guys were, they were unbelievable. Guys like Mike Lang, uh, who's still doing it, and Larry Mahobarak, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But uh, um, And, and uh, oh my gosh, they were just... There were a whole bunch of really, really phenomenal piano players that could just play circles around me. And these were the A-team guys, and I was kind of coming up, and there were just a whole bunch of guys my age who were all trying to do the same thing. We were all trying to be studio musicians. And there, I knew guitar players and bass players and drummers, and I, I met a lot of them through Mike. They were all guys who were, and we were playing on his demo dates, and we were get, getting some record dates, and then sometimes his office would call and ask us if we wanted to be stand-ins on the shows. If we didn't have anything going that day, we could go pretend like we were being a, like a band on screen. Cool. And, and you get paid for that. Yeah, you get paid for that. Okay, what show can I find you in? Oh, <laughs> well, I, I actually accidentally stumbled on one that I'd never seen before, but there I was. And it just appeared on, on TV. Uh, it was an A-team. Oh, man. Yeah, that was one of the first shows that I experienced with Mike. And Mike basically said, 
look, you should follow me into this because you are really good at writing these neat little things on piano, and you'd be perfect for writing for picture. I just have to show you how to do it. So I had a big lesson with him, and he, he told me what was really important about writing for picture. It was like a two-hour lesson. I recorded it. Smart. Um, Cassette? Well, I have it on a CD now. but um, You've got it. I still have it. Eric, that's so cool. Oh, it's that's, like, it, it's irreplaceable. And, uh, that's so cool. I would, I would like to hear that someday. And he said, well, <laughs> I, I'd be happy to turn me on to it. He, he also said, uh, listen, you have to orchestrate your own music. You, there's not time for you to hire an orchestrator, orchestrator to do this. Yeah. So the turnaround is like, well, you might get the assignment on a Tuesday to write a few cues, and by Thursday we're in the studio. So you're going to be up late. I guarantee it. You have to write, and we use a 35-piece orchestra. Oh, wow. What? Yeah. How do you do this? You, you did this all by hand? Yeah. What? Now, this was before computers really took hold, so um, it, computers were just starting to happen, but they were... Um, the way we did it, Mike had a copyist company in okay. Hollywood that, that uh, a room full of people with incredible penmanship that, yeah. that copied off of the orchestral score that we gave them. Yeah. And they wrote out all the parts for everybody, and they didn't make many mistakes. When I was in college, there was a calligraphy class, a music calligraphy class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is a lost art. But yeah. this is what we had then. And, um, and it was fine. It, it made our job compartmentalized and therefore doable. Like today, okay. we're used to wearing all the hats for everything, and it's really, it's still hard for me to, to accept that. But, but back then, if you were going to write the music for the cue, or for the a particular scene, mm -hmm. well, you had to nail it. And that meant your picture sense had to be spot on. And if it wasn't, um, you had to work on it. And you had to figure out, well, why did I go a little bit off on this? You know, it should have been more scary. It wound up being too sad. <laughs> and that's, that's writing technique, you know, wow. and, and it's picture sense. So you have to decide exactly what's needed for the picture, and then how, and then what are the notes to write, and what are the instruments to use. It's amazing. In this orchestra, there were three keyboard players. There was a guy who usually played um, piano, acoustic piano, and there were two synth players. So you could have an electric piano, and you could have somebody else uh, fortifying the strings, or you could have the second keyboard player doing some horns with the horn players okay. and, and the other guy doing strings. Or you could have them doing crazy sounds. Okay, okay. So you could, yeah, you could use them that way. A couple of woodwind players, <clears throat> a small okay. string section, a couple of horns, um, two percussionists and a drummer and a bass player, two guitar players, two electric guitar players, or two guitar players. One rhythm, one lead? Um, you could have them both doing electric. Just depended on so that you can so that you can write it like a record. You have one guy doing chinks and the other guy doing lines or or something else. You can divide it up like you would on a record, but it goes down in real time, recorded once, and no overdubbing. Yeah, and that's the that's the amazing challenge, but also the amazing results of of doing something with a large group like that. Well, I. It was scary for me, very scary. It would be for me. But Mike did all the conducting, and okay. Mike said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, 
there's nothing you can write that I can't fix. Okay. And he didn't mean that in a in, no. a, in a big-headed way. He meant it as in kind of an insurance policy. Right. He knew he had faith that I could write and not get too far off base. Yeah. And if he needed to fix something, he'd fix it. Reassuring. He's not going to let you it fail. It was so reassuring. It was like a safety net. Yeah. So, and his team of writers, because he had about six different guys who all had various um, experience writing for television. Some were bona fide orchestrators. They always had been orchestrators. Me, I was just learning. I had to learn on the fly. Mm -hmm. I'd never orchestrated or arranged anything. I'd never studied it in school. I quit school. And wow. I didn't understand what really what, what school had that I was going to need. So um, I just found out. I had to go study. I studied with this gentleman named Albert Harris, who used to work for um, uh, uh, Bet. Oh, he worked for uh, Barbara Streisand. He was her conductor, and he taught me to orchestrate. Oh, so okay. I, he took a complete course from him while I was doing cues on the side. Wow! And so you could take your stuff to him and talk about it. Yeah, uh, but. He wouldn't, but he had his lessons. He he had lessons prepared for me. Okay. Like this time, for the next two weeks, we're, we're talking all only about strings. And okay. I, so I really got a, a really great orchestration course from Albert. How but, great is this? This is all so great. <laughs> it's just, it was scary though. Yeah, I'm, because, sure. I'm sure. Because it was nerve-wracking, and I seldom left one of those sessions without a headache. <laughs> but, but the team of writers were very supportive, and they were all very helpful. That's so good, um, too. Velton Ray Bunch, Walter Murphy, Jerry Grant. Um, there were a bunch of people whose names I've just spaced on, but uh, but they were all so nice to me, and and they'd answer any questions. They'd get together with me sometimes on off weeks where I wasn't working, and they'd show me stuff. Pete Carpenter, um, Mike's partner, he gave me some orchestration lessons. Um, and I've studied orchestration with everybody I could study with. I mean, if somebody could teach me orchestration, I would go in and see if there's something. I took it at Belmont, again, after going through this whole thing in Hollywood. Because we, we orchestrated Mike Post sounding music. Okay. All of his scores, um, we worked on kind of a leitmotif okay. type of way of organizing. So if you were... Like, I worked a lot on Hunter. That was a cop show. Um, and if you, the bad guys were on the scene, if, the, if they were on the screen, you used the bad guy theme that we, <laughs> that we wrote that week. Mike, Mike would write a bad guy theme every week. Okay. And sometimes it was nothing more than just, it seemed like mashing his hand down on the keyboard and just getting some really gnarly, ugly combination of notes, you know, <laughs> which, again, it would have been helpful to have some 12-tone training under my belt but I skipped all oh, that oh interesting really so seriously you really mean that it would have yeah I would have been it, that yeah. was what I couldn't see when I was 19 years old okay that surprises me that it would have been but it could have been relevant well so I that just meant I had to fake it I was hardly going to get into 12 tone music <laughs> at that point and I still gotcha. didn't like it gotcha. so but but I found a use for it if you want to write some really ugly gnarly <laughs> drug music for the drug lord guy you know this is how we did it Today it's probably a little different, you know, because the styles change. But, but so we would do that with the drug guy. When the good guys were on the screen, we'd use bits and pieces of of the theme that Mike wrote okay. for the show. Okay. 
So if you were maybe doing da da dum bum 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 bob for a team or one of those, you'd write bits and pieces of that when the good guys were on the screen. Okay, okay. Um, it made complete sense. It was so organized. He he was a genius at at not only writing the music, but but putting it together, implementing it. Yeah. I, I remember going over to his house and hanging out with him in the studio and him going, hey, you want to check out this uh, tune I, I just finished for a, a new TV show? And I said, yeah, I want to hear it. So he uh, puts on the recording. It's, um, it's this. It's... Uh, you know... Uh, yeah. Hill Street Blues. And he's playing this for me. And it's like, wow, this is really cool. I love it. That That's great. And then it had some really weird changes in it, in the middle of it. It was like, wow, I can't believe where you went with that. It's really neat. And Now I can hear it in my head. Yeah, and I, I didn't do the I, I didn't do the studio session for that. Larry Mahoberak did, I think. But, um, man, I mean, just to be in on that, on on some level to be sitting on his couch hearing it before it hits the airwaves and of course it became a number one record and a Grammy and everything else yeah um, so <laughs> crazy was, it, I just got so fortunate you know um, when you're doing the orchestration are you using the piano were you sitting at the piano you like or did you do it in your head or a combination um, of both you you really have to use your head um, you really do it but of course a lot of us especially the, those of us who are adept at playing synthesizer um, it's just so much more or less painful to to just get a string patch up but you still have to realize that it's not going to sound like that yeah. with real people yeah it's going to be different right um, and, and in a lot of ways um, so Yes, you can use synthesizers. Yes, you can use the piano. A lot of people do. But I think most people will tell you that you really need to hear it in your head. Yeah. And then you got to try to go from what you're hearing in your head instead of letting your fingers do the walking. Because mm -hmm. we do that a lot when we write. You know, we just, our fingers just do the, do the heavy lifting and, and we write what our fingers know how to do. Well, that's not... Yeah, yeah. That's got its limitations. You're only... You're only repeating yourself and what your fingers know how to do anyway. Regurgitation, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, you're just playing licks that you're comfortable with. That's right. And, and it's not always about that. That can pull you through for a certain amount of time, but you really need to yeah. invent. And it'll yeah. happen if you just think about it, you know. Yeah. And it helps, too, if you have a, a deadline over your head. You, <laughs> you learn to become a deadline writer and you forget about stuff like writer's block. It's like, I hardly even know that term. You know, it's just, I don't think I've ever had writer's block. I've had days where I didn't feel like writing something. Mm -hmm. But I know that having studied theory and stuff and as much as I have, that if I have to write something because it's due, yes. I can do it. Yes. And I'm not going to say whether it's my best work or not. I don't know. It's the best I can do right now. There you go. I totally understand what you're saying.
So how long? So you're you're learning to just write because you're a writer. How long did this um, go on? And and um, well, I never had much luck with my songwriting. I had a couple of songs covered um, that other artists did, and uh, I usually co-wrote with lyricists. I like doing the music, but not the lyrics. So most of my writing was done in in the television genre, and then I I got some opportunities to write for film, and that's a little different. There's a little bit more freedom there, and you're expected to be a little bit less less pat and a little bit more inventive because when you're dealing with a television series, you want to use the same palette of colors from week to week so that it hangs together. Yeah. It okay. doesn't. Otherwise, you, if you didn't make some ground rules like that and you had people helping you, you'd have like six different composers with six different styles. Yeah. So you have to tie it all together. When you're doing a movie, it's a little different. But um, That makes sense to me. Then I started working with Danny Lux, and Danny went through the Mike Post thing as one of his composers. And Danny's really a talented composer, drummer, engineer. He's amazing. Um, and I, I started working with him after I kind of left the Mike Post fold. Um, because I was also, when I was, I was doing this half the time, and the other half the time I was playing keyboards for different artists. Because after all, I wanted to be a studio player, and doing that led to road gigs. And so I, you, I'd do auditions, and we always would hear about auditions going on. Mm -hmm. This was Hollywood in the, in the mid-70s. It was a different world. But we all kind of heard about the auditions. We all see the same, you know, usual suspects at the auditions. Sometimes they'd get it. Sometimes you'd get it. <laughs> uh, they're all good players and everybody's friends. And uh, they might get the audition, but then you're going to be doing a session with them next week. So it was just like all these guys sort of knew each other. And they're all in the same place at the same time. It was like a community. Wow. Um, and so this went on. And then when Mike started getting a whole new bunch of different guys Involved, and that's when I started working with Danny. And I started working on Party of Five, Ally McBeal, um, Sliders, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, okay. um, My Name is Earl, Scrubs, uh, and there's probably some other ones that I can't remember, but I got a lot of work with Danny, and I kind of it got narrowed down a little bit, and I was doing a lot of source cues which um, are simply cues that have an actual visual source on the screen. Yeah. Either the music's coming out of a radio or the music's coming from a band on stage, which okay. all has to be all has to be composed and written and you know and, and uh, recorded, pre-recorded wow. uh, and then staged. Uh, the wow. actors have to pretend that they're they're miming your what you recorded and all that stuff. There's, there's a whole method to all this. Oh my goodness. And uh, I got into a lot more writing source cues and um, I got a couple of opportunities to write theme songs and uh, write a show in its totality, but it didn't happen much. I mostly worked for Mike or Danny. Um, and then when that started drying up, like around 2005, um, we moved to Nashville. Okay. Um, because by the by the time things started drying up, styles had really changed. Yeah. Um, you can even hear it in Mike's TV stuff. Before, you know, his early stuff was so thematic. You know, like uh, rock or was it 
Yeah, Rockford Files. Da 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 I mean, just cool melodies, you know? Yeah. And then by the mid-80s, all that was out. And you had stuff like, um, not L.A. Law, but you had things like um, Law and Order, where they're, you know, or you had uh, hit shows. NYPD Blue, great example. It's like a pastiche of sounds, sound sculpting. Mm -hmm. So you have synth sounds and percussion sounds, lots of drums and cool jungle beats and <laughs> right? stuff. And then maybe a little theme, two or three notes, and that's it. Yes. You know? Um, yes. A lot of the shows from that era, they'd gone from, the styles changed, you know? So, um, and then the styles also changed drastically in pop music. Now rap and hip-hop were the predominant things. And, and all the old pop music that I grew up learning how to play, out the window. Right. So nobody was getting much studio work. Um, and the TV thing, you know, Mike was trying to retire. Okay. And, and I was still doing a little bit with Danny, but... And I was still going on the road. I was playing with Neil Sedaka. Um, and I still play with him. How um, often? I mean, like, um, back then, like, when it first started, were you, like, the regular person? Or did, how does he manage that? Does he Neil? hire? Mm -hmm. Well, Neil... Or how often does he tour, even? I, I started out playing with the Pointer Sisters, and I did that for a year, and that was really fun. And then when that was over, um, I had done session work with all the guys in Neil's band. Uh, they just all, they all lived in Hollywood, so... Uh, they told me that they convinced him to hire a second keyboard player because he plays piano and he's really a fine pianist. He's classically trained and all. Gotcha. But when he stands up and grabs the microphone, the bottom falls out of the band, so yeah. even with a guitar player. So they finally convinced him to have auditions for a key, second keyboard and I, I happened to get that. Um, so we started, that would have been 1983, and every year he just keeps filling up the schedule with more dates and this he would work about half the year so Whoa. two weeks out of every month I'd be gone with Neil I'd come home Mike would give me an assignment maybe to do on a show do three cues for for Hunter or something like that and yeah it was just wonderful this sounds like a great life it, actually it a wonderful. good balance of getting to go see the world Getting to play with world-class musicians, and then... Well, not everybody probably was as kind about it as Mike was, because, you know, I'm sure that if you left town for half the time, a lot of people would just go on and use other people. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a pretty loyal guy, you know, and... Um, so anyway, that kept up, and Neil just is still doing it. Last year, we heard rumors he was going to retire, but then he decided against that, so we're still... Getting, uh, we've got a few more dates to play this year, and next year we're, he's gonna. I understand he's gonna book next year, um, maybe one once a month or every couple months. Okay, where do you play? Like, what typically? What's his venue? Well, we play a lot of uh, really nice concert halls. Like, we're we've got one coming up at the uh, Cerritos Performing Arts Center. We we've, we've done that a number of times. Is that in California? It, it is. It's south of L.A. Okay. And we've done. Um, a lot of stuff in uh, Palm Springs. They have some the McCallum Theater. They have some beautiful theaters, full-on, you know, great big stages with full-on sound system and light show, light systems. Everything is just 
top notch, you know. And, That's nice. Um, and, but we do a lot of gambling casinos, okay. and a lot of the a lot of the showrooms in these gambling casinos are first rate. Yeah, They're really good. The, what's his rider like? For like, <laughs> what do you are you insured really good gear or well, does he I have s- a grand piano or? Yeah, always. When we when we started with him. That back in those days, they trucked our gear around, so I used all my own personal gear. So okay. I had all my favorite keyboards, and I played flute, and I played. Man, it was just you know I had it set up like Rick Wakeman, and I was just mm-hmm. you know doing everything that I needed to do for the show, and I had it just so that it fit like a glove. And then one day, the road manager said, "We can't use your setup anymore. We're going to have to. We're going to start using backline." Mm-hmm. which was kind of a new concept back then. and So you have to pick out a couple of keyboards that are going to be your staples that we're likely to be able to find at a rental house. Yeah. And so what I settled on, well, I had a B3. That was on the rider by that point. Okay. And two synths. One of them was a uh, kind of one for the meat potatoes, uh, electric piano stuff. Yeah. So like a Yamaha or Roland RD or something like that. Okay. And the other synth I used was kind of sort of a weird one, um, an XP80, Roland XP80. And it had a disc drive in it, which is why it's a dinosaur now. But back then, it was all very new, and it meant that I could tweak all the sounds just like I wanted them. Yeah. And, and that's a synth that you can actually tweak. Yeah. You know, you can't do that today because they're all sample-based. And it's kind of like what you got is what you got. Uh, you can do a few little filtering things, maybe, or yeah, effects, maybe. Effects, yeah, exactly. But back then, if you really wanted to get into the nitty gritty and change um, oscillators and retune things, and you could do it. So I'd, I'd save all that to the disc, and to this day, we rent uh, XP80s, but they're getting harder to find in operating condition. So I'm having to I'm, I'm having to still sw- I mean my road manager has been on me for at least a year about trying to <laughs> upgrade the, from the XP80. Oh, you know that's a lot of work when you have to switch all that stuff around. Well, it's not only a lot of work for the programming and and you're taking a chance on being able to find it everywhere you go, but it's also work from the player standpoint because you have to relearn how to play your parts to make them sing on the new mm-hmm. synth like I know how the envelope is going to be on those strings that I use for the yeah. XP80. Yeah. If I if if I find just any old string patch, it might be too attacky. It might be not attacky right. enough. Right. Uh, and it makes you play it differently. And right, that is so true. And I'm a volume pedal guy. I love to have everything on a volume pedal so that I can slide those strings in just the way they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's really an inherent part. Of doing strings and horns and all that kind of stuff is to have, I mean, you wouldn't play organ without a volume pedal. True. Uh, you wouldn't play piano without a sustain pedal. Uh, right. Those things are integral. So it's a constant battle nowadays to get the gear that I really want. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I don't know. I think that we're kind of like fading into the sunset with this band. And uh, if you were on the road with some hot country artist who had songs on the charts, yeah, it'd probably be easier to get what you need. Yeah. Um, right. So, but our, you know, the venues that we play are amazingly um, uniform. 
Uh, they have backstage areas, we have dressing rooms, there's a green room, they provide a meal for us. Um, it's, our riders, pretty cool. I mean, we, we've had it a long time and it's been good. Mm-hmm. So you know how to, you, do, you, do you practice before these gigs or you know this stuff like the back of your hand? <laughs> well, this is funny that you would bring this up. Um, for years, I really didn't have to practice the stuff very much because I really had it in muscle memory. Then when you go through these, you know, bare kind of periods where there weren't many gigs and you might take three months off with no gig, you come back, you're pretty rusty. You can't even really remember stuff. So you have to... You have to um, go over things before you go out. And I make a habit of going over everything, at least the, the most challenging things I do. Gotcha. If I go out to the acoustic piano, which I do a couple times during the set, and it's mainly Neil and, and myself, me backing him up. And it's a piano. We don't have a guitar player. So okay. it's like, yeah, so it's really, you know. You are filling up a lot mm, of the oral space. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I'm sort of the harmonic underpinning of what we're doing um you can't make mistakes you know you you just don't do that and that's one of the big differences between we're doing one of his shows and and maybe maybe doing in town clubs and stuff like that is that you just uh, you don't say anything in between songs it's his stage yeah we don't make noise you don't tune you don't test your keyboards right you are there and you are on stage and you are not attracting attention and when called upon to play you play yeah. and you do it flawlessly and that's that's how you have to do it and that's what those gigs are about and it's it's not that it's not that way when you go play a club gig yeah i mean it's it's a lot looser yes <clears throat> but this is this is the way it is for that level you know and um I'm I'm used to it, you know. I I like it. There there've been a couple of tense moments, you know. There always are going to be those. <laughs> it would be for me. You know, I mean, well, I, I could just I'd say in my head, like if I was having a really bad day or if I was, let's say I was just tired or or maybe I'm dealing with I don't know, can't see very well or something, you know, like there's not enough light or there could be all kinds of issues yeah. that could happen. Yeah. I can imagine. But I might start hearing in my head, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You know? Oh, that's a, that's a great subject. A lot of people talk about that, that little voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we all have it, don't we? You know, nobody escapes that. Yeah. But you can, you can learn to control it. And, um, you know, you have to make a, an extreme effort to learn to control that because it's going to be a detriment to you no matter what you do no matter what level you're at and and there's no reason for it except that you're human and you've got it so you have to learn to put it in a box and put the lid on it that's all there is to it um here's one that that i would torture myself with i don't know we probably all have our little things that we like to do you know <laughs> right you know to amuse ourselves but i <laughs> I would get down on myself for making a mistake, and I would let it ruin the entire show for me. Um, I'd make a mistake, and I'd go, "I know everybody heard that. I, they had to have. They'd have to be deaf not to hear that, even if you're not a musician." And of course, that that's just a huge overstatement. Yeah. Because the truth of the matter is that usually, even the musicians on stage didn't hear it. You know, you just 
are so focused on what you're doing and you're so intent. It's just like when you're in the recording studio and the red light's yes. on. Yes. You've you got to get a perfect take because you don't want to have to be the one that says, hey, i got to punch something. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so, it makes you feel bad, yeah. Yeah, so I would kick myself really hard for making a mistake and it would ruin the rest of my show. And then um, even when people after the show would come up and give you a compliment, it was like water off a duck's back. I, I couldn't even accept the compliment because I knew I sucked. And, or at least that's what I was telling myself. And, and then I had, to, I had to ease up and realize that I'm just, I'm just flagellating my, you know, it's like myself <laughs> unnecessarily. Um, in the first place, most people don't hear the mistakes. In the second place, we're human, we make mistakes. Yes. Uh, in the third place, isn't it better logically to contain the mistake in that moment and go on and have a great show than to let it torture you and then go on to make more mistakes. Yeah. Which is what I would do. Yeah, right, because... You're... So I know this sounds dumb, and I, but, you know, as long as you asked about about those little voices and stuff, that that's one I had to deal with. Well, I, I just know that once, you know, the higher level of gig that you're playing, when the stakes get higher, they, um, you know, it's... I've had to focus on some kind of... Um, like, um, I love this music so much and I want to share it. Or some kind of, I've had to put myself in this mode of, mm. I can't wait to play this for you. Even if people are just like, they never catch Changing it. your attitude, kind of, mm-hmm. about it. Focusing on, like, reprocessing your, your, the way you're thinking. Yes. I'm going to just pour myself into this next 30-minute segment of my life and... You know, eke I, out. I, I've never. I wonder why I've never tried that approach exactly. That's just really good. Well, it's exhausting, you know. And I mean, you really have to be ultimately ready. Like you cannot. There can't be a question in your mind of. And in my experience, I mean, I don't. You know, you can't be like, oh, I wonder if that's a D minor chord or D major. You know, it, all the questions have to be answered. Mm-hmm. Like you're just really sure. Of I have trouble not judging myself. I really do. I, I'm always there to sort of judge whether I pulled that thing off the way I wanted to, oh, or yeah. was it? Me too. Yeah. You know, it's really funny about now. Now I go in and I do these solo piano recordings um, for myself. That's what I'm into these days. And um, <clears throat> there's a huge difference between making a mistake and not following through on your intention. So you, you may have intended to play it a certain way, and you didn't do it. You fell short of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was a mistake. Because the listener, sometimes you, you still played the right notes. Or maybe a note didn't come out right the way it was supposed to. You didn't play a wrong note. It wasn't a mistake. It was, your intention was not. And so you think it's a mistake because you knew what you meant to do. But you can afford to be a little nicer to yourself, you know, and go, well, okay, let's not, it wasn't the way I intended to do it, but is it is it still good, or do I really have to fix it? It's going to torture me for the rest of my life. Yes, yes. Are you talking about like when you're recording or playing mm-hmm. live? When I'm recording. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. playing live, if it's not your intention, it's like, oh, well, that, that goes to your benefit a lot of times because it's not necessarily a mistake it's like I didn't voice that chord the way I meant to voice it Mm -hmm. I had a really cool voicing I was going to do and I kind of blew it but I got most of the notes in there Mm -hmm. yeah so who cares right yeah it's not really 
when you're playing when you're recording like um so I, I was on the way over here. I was listening to some of your songs. I, was I heard Clockworks. Oh, Clockworks. That's that's a gorgeous song. Oh, thank you. I love that. Yeah. And I like it. So let's say you're recording that song. Would you just try to pretend you're playing live? Does that help you to think of it that way? Or are you thinking, this is going on to <laughs> a no. disc? No, I, I have to. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think about the audience or think about. I think when I'm at my best, I think I'm just locked into the music. I'm really expressing the music the way I want to express it. And of course, that involves your intention. So, you know, it's a it's kind of a cosmic circle of things that happen, and you have to learn to deal with them when they don't go exactly your way. But I think you need to get inside the music when you're, when you're at your best. You need to... Yes. It's just like yes. you write... I mean, you write songs and stuff, right? I haven't been lately, but yeah, I, I have. But you know what it's like when you... Well, even as a player, you can do the same thing. When you catch a groove, and you, you're no longer even thinking about stuff, it's like the music is almost playing itself, to, yes. to use an old cliche. Yes. It's, but it's true. And when you're writing something, and you're tapped into whatever it is that that allows you to, to write songs. Some people say that it's a cosmic source or it's whatever, but however you think of it, when it's happening in real time, you're not even conscious of it, you're not even thinking about it, you're just, it's just coming out of you. And so that, I th think a lot of people like to say, well, I'm just a conduit, you know, for the, for the music. And yeah, you can think of it like that, you know. Right, um, channeling it. Yeah, but when you're playing, you want, if you're really in the moment, you're not even aware of the audience. You're not aware of, you know, your rent payment. You're yeah. not aware yeah. of, of any of the stuff that only serves to distract you. Yes. You're totally into the music. And it can be jarring when you make a mistake. But um, it's like meditation. You pull yourself back into it. You, um, you become mindful. You... Yes. <laughs> you you go okay. I made a mistake. Onwards and forwards. That's that. I mean, I'm, and you don't think about it anymore. Just like if you were being mindful about anything, you know, like meditation or something, you would you got distracted because you heard a phone ring. Mm -hmm. You heard it. There's no denying it. So on, onwards and forwards. Let's get back to what we're doing. Right. Right. There's a real aspect of flow in music. Just. Um, yeah, it's a it's a real time art form. It's a it's it unfolds in real time, and this is yes. this is something that I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that I've had to learn this the hard way. That your time has to be better than good. It has to be just to be able to play with the metronome is not enough. That's where it all starts. So your first, it's like in the ball game. That's first base. When you learn to play pretty flawlessly with the metronome, not rush, not drag, but get to that point, and I know a lot of players will relate to this, but when you for, you can't hear the metronome anymore because you're so on with the, you know, with the click that you you lose it. Yes. But um, that's the first step, and then after that, then there's all these clever little tricks you can do putting the metronome on two and four instead of one and three or one, two, three, and four. You put it on the on the backbeat 
if it's something that has a backbeat, you know. Yes. Um, put it on the and of one and the and of three. See how you do. Can yeah. you do it? It's it's like a you have to you have to challenge yourself, and then beyond that, you need to learn how to back phrase or maybe do a slight accelerando and then back it off so you still come out in the right place. Yes. Um, you manipulate the time. Like a rubato. So, yeah, sort you of. can't manipulate it if you can't play in time. Mm -hmm. So first you learn to play in time, then you learn how to manipulate it, but your time is still great even though you're manipulating it. It's just like these great jazz players that are you know, vocalists who are back-phrasing, and they're so behind the beat, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they know right where they are, and they know what they're doing, and it sounds beautiful yeah. because it's their intention, and it's right, it's musical. Um, if you tried to quantify it and and, and <laughs> auto-correct it, right. ah, screw it up. I think it quantize. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, I can't remember whose version I was listening to, but the other night I was listening to This Can't Be Love. Da, da, da. Whatever that song, it's like um, it's called "This Can't Be Love." It's a tr it's a standard. Okay. And whoever was singing it was like way behind the beat. They it was like one, two, um, this can't be love. Da, 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 ba, ba, ba. And they catch back up, you know. You know, there's a fine line between back phrasing and driving the piano player crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you you have to like a, as a piano player, you can you could set things back a little bit behind the bass player and drummer in in that jazz context. <clears throat> but it's hilarious. You know, everything's got limits, and, and I know I know uh, some singers who um, they they just go to extremes, and that that's not good. Right. <laughs> and it sure isn't any good rushing, isn't it? Unbelievable how you can get away with. So much back phrasing, but boy, you rush something, uh, that's a no-no. It really feels terrible. It always does. It never really, I mean, accelerandos, are, I rarely encounter anything that has an accelerando. I mean, sometimes in classical music, there'll be a, when they're trying to build excitement with something. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an instance, because I listened to another video of yours, and you were just playing this nice little tune. It was like, I think they said it was songs from your, um, follow, follow Your Heart. Follow Your Heart. Okay. And then all of a sudden, you're like, you're shredding Debussy. Um, Gratis Ad Parnassum from Children's Corner Suite. Dr. Gratis. That's it. Oh, I love yes. that. I love and, that. Like, I did not expect that at all because I was just listening to you play this nice little tune, you know. And not, but Where I, was that? I don't know. It was on your, it's on your website. Uh, I don't know where you were playing, but it was a live show oh that you God. were playing, and all of a sudden you just like rip into this WCPs, and you're just kind of shredding. And you, you, that was an accelerando to the end for sure. You know, Doctor Gratis is an is an old friend of mine. Just like several of the pieces from Children's Corner mm -hmm. and Girl with the Flaxen Hair, and there's a couple of Chopins and a Bach or two. They are my old friends. Yes, and I've been playing them for years. I let them go. I come back to them, I can't hardly play them, but then they come back to me really fast, and then I work them back up, and I, and I can really, I can really rock and roll with them, you know, for a while, and then, and then I get busy doing other things, I always come back to them, though. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I have um, a few pieces like that, too, I know what you're saying, the Bach two-part inventions, yeah, 
Yeah, Somehow I just, God, I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. I, I wish I could play it better. But, you know, it takes dedication and keeping it up. And uh, another thing that's really funny about about being a, a piano player in this day and age, but you, when you get to be my age, you've played so much material that you can't remember all the pieces that you should be able to remember because there's just so many things that you've been asked to learn. I mean, I, yes. I, I play in a bunch of different bands in the area. They all have different set lists. and um, I have to know all that stuff and all of Neil's stuff and all of my own stuff, and I'm writing all the time, so I'm learning new stuff. and um, It just gets to be an amazing amount of material that, you know... I hear you. You, you know, I, I could, but I can remember the days when I had a repertoire of, you know, a dozen songs I knew how to play. And I practiced those and I could play them and that's what I knew. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you start working, it's it's really hard to maintain that side of yourself that just has you and the piano. Yeah. Because it's suddenly you're sharing it with a lot more people and they're relying on you and... um, I don't know. Is, did you move to Nashville to play in bands, or why did why did you no. move? No, I didn't. You know, um, I moved to Nashville because I thought I could carry on doing session work in Nashville. I didn't think I'd be able to do any TV writing, except for something that maybe Danny would sub out to me from California. But I was looking forward to doing sessions, and I was also wanting to break this habit that I was in in Los Angeles where people would come to you and they would go we want you to do like a complete production of this tune Whoa. so you gotta program the drums and the and do the bass and the yeah. strings and you do everything did you do that too sequencing lots of it really and um, what did I, you use well I had to I've used a number of different things the best things I could find at the moment you know or whatever I could afford uh, when samples became available I used a lot of samples but um, I studied drummers, you know, to try to figure out how they put it all together. And to this day, when I try to write a drum part, I try to visualize a drummer actually and how he would do it. Yeah. So that the, the feel is the important. It's, Speaking of rhythm. Yeah, yeah. writing idiomatically, yeah. and that's what you really need to learn to do. But but because of the economics of the business uh, and the fact that you you could get pretty good renditions of some sounds with uh, synthesizers and samplers, uh, people would often come to you and ask you to do a whole production of stuff, and you got paid better than you would if you just came in and did a session. Yeah. But you didn't get paid commensurately uh, to account for the ten times over amount of work that that goes into that. Isn't it true? I'd spend three hours on the drum part. Oh, yeah. Um, Easily. Try to lock the bass in, you know. Try to get just the right bass sample, and then, and then when you're writing idiomatically, half the battle is not giving yourself away. Right? You don't. You. Do, it's like. That I, you're I, actually a keyboard player programming you, this stuff. You, yeah. Don't give yourself away that these are samples. Yeah. So it's like what I tell my students in school now, when I teach arranging and stuff like that, is to, you know, the trumpet player is going to have to take a breath. Yes, 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 you know, yes. It's just, yes. you know, flute players have to breathe. Right. Um, violinists can play for extended periods of time, but, you know, it just, 
doesn't sound musical for them to never take a break. Mm -hmm. You have to, there's phrasing, mm -hmm. yes. there's breathing, There, it, you need to emulate what the player, that's how the great writers would write for the great players. And they would seize on the strengths and they would downplay the weaknesses and they would learn to write within the range yeah. of the instruments so they're not doing impossible stuff. Yeah, Dr. Marler, you know, who both who taught both of us at Belmont. Oh, he's the best. Is he not just the best? But he would, t you know, like we, I was running this big Chopin ballad and I remember him saying, if Chopin asks you to jump really far, he expects you to take a little time. He will not, he's a great writer. He will not ask you to do something that is humanly impossible. So just chill out and take your time getting to this, you know, you don't have to go blah blah. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Marler, um, he was very patient with me, and uh, he, because of him, I learned several new things. Which that's to his credit, because uh, it's really hard for me to plug into a new piece to learn, and he made me do it. You know, and that that was good for me, and I'm really happy about that. Um, and he was always very, uh, very kind and easygoing with me, because um, I'm basically an ear player. I'm not such a good reader. Right. You know, that's always been kind of a thorn in my side. Um, and so playing classical music, I have to figure it all out, you know, go through and work it all out, and then get it so that it becomes muscle memory. Yeah. And that's that's how I do it. And that's an unfortunate carryover from growing up. I was never made to sight read when I was a kid every day to learn to get good at it and therefore enjoy it. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, I never excelled at it. Um, I always was given a big hard piece and I would set about learning it and then I'd learn it and play it in the recital and um, that seemed to be my calling. So sure. um, I never really, never really got that reading thing. I'd say a lot of players do it that way and the reading thing really does. You're, you're just dead right about that. I think that you have to do it so much. You, have to, you do it enough that you get better at it and then you learn to like it. I, I still have, now there, I don't know, there's like, I must be missing some synapses in my brain or something that just seems so hard now to, to you'd think by my age, I'd, I'd be able to sit down on the piano and sight read pretty good, you know, but it's still a struggle for me. Um, I don't know what it is. It's just, I guess if I worked on it every day, it would be better. You know, there's different modes of learning too, and it could be that you're, uh, I mean, you may be driven by the ear. The ear may be your number one mode of learning. And uh, visual, you know, is also an aspect. And then there's kinesthetic. There's people who are just naturals at the instrument. You know, speaking from just my teaching, look, just looking at students. And it seems like it's pretty rare to find somebody with all three firing on all cylinders, you know, like. And um, yeah. usually people are driven by either their visual or their ear or their body. See, those were the guys that made the A-team out, out, in, out in California when I was trying to, to do session work. Yeah. Those were the A-team guys. That, they were firing on all cylinders. They could... I'll never forget um, one time doing a... God, it was a... I guess it was a A-team or something. And Larry Mahobarak was playing piano, acoustic piano, on that date. And I was just, I, th I played synth, I played clavinet. I had a simple little clavinet part. 
And after the session was over and people were packing up, the engineer came out and said, hey, Larry, and he was carrying a book of Chopin. He said, could you play anything in this book? Because we just need it for this one little section. And he said, yeah, sure. So he, he opened it and I guess, you know, he's, he's had his training too and he's, he probably knew several of those pieces, but, but he just whipped off, you know, like one of these, it was like a ballad or something. It was gorgeous. Lord have mercy. He played it really well. He didn't yeah. even have to play the whole thing. They said, oh yeah, that's great. That's, that's perfect. Oh my gosh. I was just so impressed with that. <laughs> you know, and if, you, if they would have asked him to do a jazz improv, he could have done that too. Yeah. Holy cow! Yes, 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 yes. Those yeah. were those were the guys, man. Those are the guys that uh, I thought. Well, I'll never be that guy. I'll never be as good as those guys. I'll just keep trying. But you, the secret is you find your own niche. Yes, yes. You do what you do, and nobody else does quite what you do. Especially if you're a writer. Mm-hmm. And so you figure, okay, I've got my own take on things, my own personality, my own way of playing, and for better or worse, that's what I got. I may never play as fast as Chick or as you know, uh, have the harmonic sense as Herbie, or I'll never be able to play like Arthur Rubinstein. I'll never be able to do any of this stuff like those guys. But um, I just, I'm satisfied being as good a me as I can be. That's that's about it. You know, that's you have to just let it go and not expect the impossible. Yeah, there's a sacrifice to be made for those guys. I know. Um I mean, I can't. I don't know the depths of it. I don't know them personally or anything, but I'm sure there have there have been. I don't know how to put it exactly, but you know, balance issues perhaps when you're carrying around that big of a gift. I don't know. I just um, no. You're right. You're right. Those a lot of times, you know, you you get this kind of Rain Man thing going where it's people can be a savant, yeah. you know, at doing certain things. <laughs> And then not be able to, they can't balance their checkbook or they can't tie their shoes or the, you know. Right. It's just, it is amazing. The human brain. Yes. You know, is, is an amazing thing. But, um. So, so let's go to Nashville. So, so you, you get here and you're going to play some sessions and get away from sequencing. Lord knows I understand that. I did a lot of sequencing myself in the early 90s. It's exhausting. I learned a whole lot though doing it. It was good for me. Yeah. So you get here and I got I got here in two thousand six, and um, I bought a house, and um, everything was you know I learned very quickly that being from L.A. and having some measure of success in in that arena meant nothing here. Really, that shocks me. I would have thought that that. That would be very... Well, I mean, I'm, I might be, you know, over-dramatizing it, but it really felt that way. It felt like a lot of the people whose names, like, I cherish having been able to work for for Bette Midler or Cher or, my you know, any of these goodness. people, and, and uh, they, they mean nothing here. I mean, they, it's like they don't even know who they are. It's like this is a different place, and it's like you may take your place at the back of the line, and... That's kind of the way it... I mean, there are always some people who know and appreciate what, what you have done at, you know, in another city at another time. But it's still all about Nashville. And Nashville is, is pretty... I, we're known for certain things, you know. And 
So I tried to fit myself in as best I could, realizing that I'm never going to be a good old boy. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So for a number of reasons. But, um, but I was getting more and more sessions to do, and I felt like I was really making progress for like two years. And then the whole thing just blew up when the recession was announced. Oh, yeah. And I lost my house, um, got divorced. Um, I was a student at Belmont because I thought this, is, this might be a good investment. Well, actually, I went to Belmont to see if I could teach because I thought I might be able to impart some of the experiences I've had because they all want to know about this stuff. This is what a lot of these kids want to go in to do. Absolutely. When they graduate. Mm-hmm. It's a huge commercial music division yeah. there. So um, who, who's the lady who's the head of the music department at that time? Dr. Dr. Um, Curtis. Yes. And she explained to me, uh, she said, you know, we, at our little interview, she says, you know, your resume really looks good. It's, it's very impressive. And, it, it, you know, we would love to hire you, but... We can't hire anybody who doesn't at least have a master's, and hopefully you're working on your doctorate. And it just blew me out of the water. And I thought, oh my God. Yeah. Um, welcome to academia. Yeah. So, and she was very nice about it, you know, but this is the way the, the, the school is set up. Yeah. So um, she said, why don't you give some consideration to enrolling as a student and at least finish your undergraduate work? I bet a lot of your credits would transfer, even though they're from another era. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, surely we, they would. We would do our best to to, <laughs> and she did. She, she transferred a lot of, a lot of the stuff. My theory block, although I've opted to retake a lot of it anyway. But um, I decided to sign on as a student, yeah. and it was a really rich experience. Um, I found that. The, the, the kids there were great. They were really nice. I really liked them, but they're definitely of a different era. A lot of them, you know, I was still playing with Neil Sedaka. They didn't know who Neil was, you know. And everybody thought I was a teacher there because I'm older looking. So, and, all the, and I got along great with all the faculty. Yeah. They were, a lot of the faculty was younger than me. Yeah. And, but the faculty is like second to none. The, the teachers they had at Belmont are just... I can't say enough good about them. They, they were all super. Um, so I really enjoyed my time at Belmont, but it was really hard for me, really hard, seriously hard. Just as challenging as my years spent in LA, if, if even more concentrated, because you have to take this full load of classes. I was a full-time student, and, and um, every teacher seems to treat you like you're. You're the only class that that is being taken. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of homework, a lot of papers. A lot of homework. So um, when I graduated, I decided I really have to try to revive what's left of my career. And I I can't do... I've got a debt now. I'm still paying on that debt. Um, (laughs) And Belmont's expensive, too. Belmont's not cheap. We were there at the same time. Well, I I think I was there a year before you. I think you came in during the second year that I was there. And I took my time to really... But I I did love it. Um, It was very hard, and it was very frustrating at times. And um, uh, the world just sort of blew up at one point there with the house and the marriage and the... 
and the school all at the same time. And um, that, that was an incredible turning point. Uh, and then I had to do some real soul searching, try to figure out how do I want to put this back together? What am I going to do with myself now? I can't move back to LA because, you know, I moved from there. I'm not going to move back. And they're not having such an easy time either. And even back then, I was starting to realize, and now it's totally evident to me, that you can go anywhere and there, there's tough times everywhere in the music industry. It's really hard. Yeah. And it's a different industry than it was, and the rules have all changed, and everything's changed. Um, and you're not necessarily going to have an easier time in New York or L.A. or, or Nashville. Take your pick. What, I mean, what do you, where is your kind of music going on the most? Maybe go there. But, um, yeah. geez, you know, I, I kind of reinvented myself as... Um, going into solo piano and I had to play in bands and I just did I did that in high school and I didn't even do that much of it in California but here it's what there is to do okay so I did a lot of that and I still do what was your major real quick I, what did you finally get your what was your degree in at Belmont my, my degree was in um, contemporary composition okay how cool is that all right so so oh. Okay, and but you're taking private piano lessons with Dr. Marler, who is the pianist for the Nashville Symphony. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. And you're studying with all these different. You're getting to know all these people. Dr. Purcell was mine. Bill Purcell. Yeah, who, he, he's the best. Who played on Johnny Cash? Oh um, my God! Isn't that? I, I remember him telling me at a lesson one time that when he came to the realization that he was never going to be a good old boy. Okay. Because he was the like one of the A session players in Nashville but this was back in the day where God I don't even know if the number system was in place yet it was pretty archaic and and he had one foot firmly planted in classical music and, and legitimate you know arranging orchestrating composition he was he knew his stuff and yet he was playing on Johnny Cash Ring of Fire and yeah I, I got that I got that loud and clear you know that he was never going to be a good old boy so he he kind of pursued his academic outlet but that guy is amazing and i really loved every minute i got to spend with him um we did a lot of talking yeah you know we did a lot of comparing notes and yeah uh, that was fun that's good so you kind of you leave belmont with sort of a new idea just you're going to, or is, or is this an old idea that you've dug back out, or what makes well, you decide to go into Well, I, I should preface it by saying that um, before I left L.A., back in the mid-80s, I was a, I was an actual artist for five minutes, and I had like four CDs out, and one of them did really well, and it was in that new age genre. Okay. It was back when they had all these radio stations called The Wave. The Wave. The Wave. I don't 94.7. And uh, they were across the country, but they were mainly in certain areas, and they played a mix of New Age and contemporary jazz. Okay. Contemporary meaning, is that what they call it? Um, smooth jazz? Smooth jazz, that's it, yeah. Okay. So they okay. play Dave Benoit, and they play um, all these guys, but they play Yanni, and they play... Okay. You know, so I got hired to write 
music for a video that this guy with a video house had. And he, he had this idea and he wanted to write relaxation videos. And the first one was called Tranquility. So he hired me as a composer to write the music for that. I, I wrote that. And I remember we were building a house at the same time. And I, I had a Commodore 64 computer and it, it was the most archaic. It was practically like steam powered. It was so... <laughs> My dad had one of those. Uh, a Commodore 64. Yeah. Oh, yes. He, was, he loved computers so yeah. much. Well, anyway, I, I had to do... I, I approached it writing the music for his video the same way I did with the Mike Post shows. I wrote everything on five-line sketch paper. Okay. So I wrote everything out. Oh, wow. And then we were going to go to... They were, this little company was going to pay me to go to a studio and realize all what I'd written. So I found a studio, this dear friend of mine, uh, uh, Ray Calcord, who was Aerosmith's producer for a while, and he was also big into TV and film writing. And I'd done a little bit of working with him on TV. Anyway, he had a fantastic studio with every synth, you know, that I, no, I couldn't afford anything that he had. It was like amazing. So I, I took my sketches in and Ray and I would, you know, would, would realize them in his studio. And we did it on a Lin 9000 drum machine, sequencing everything from the Lin 9000. It was like wow. really hit or miss. Uh, it was really hard just to even get a pitch bend, you know. It was the beginning stages of sequencing. Okay. So I did this whole record like this because it was on the cheap. It was so cheap to... It, we, we recorded digitally, but not to a real digital recorder. We recorded to this, to a VHS machine with this gizmo that Sony made called an F1, and it converted the incoming signals to digital and printed them on a VHS tape. Wow. It was before ADATs, yeah. before any of that stuff. Okay. But you could do it really cheap, because one of these F1s cost maybe 500 bucks, and you could record, you know, di with digital purity. It was amazing. So there were no, the drawback was no acoustic instruments. All, it had to all be electronic. Okay. Because when you hit the play button, it, it's, the MIDI is playing all the instruments. Wow. You're not playing anything live. You already programmed it in. Okay. All right. And there's very little programming, very little fixing. Uh, you didn't quantize much stuff. It was just there was a little quantizing for drums and and bass and stuff, but it was really a crazy way to record. But that's how we recorded this album. It was called Tranquility, and then they took it around to the trade shows, um, trying to sell the video, and people kept asking if they could buy the music separately. And then we thought, why don't why don't we try to run with this? You know, so we we made CDs and we made we even made cool. press some vinyl. How cool. And uh, and then we got some radio stations to play it and we called up the wave one day and they said we're already playing it. What? <laughs> yeah it was like out of the clear blue and um, it it got up to I'll, I'll just tell you this real quick it got up to like number 12 I think on the charts in the radio and record charts um, in the new age charts. Neat. So it was like a bona fide hit and and it freaked out the guy that owned the company because 
he was working with his own money. And after it got up to the charts, we hired a guy who said, well, we need to get distribution so we can sell some records, yeah. some CDs. Sure. So he called all these distribution companies, which you had back then, you don't have them anymore. Right. And they started placing orders. Well, I'll take a thousand for Virgin Records, and I'll take five thousand for Tower. I'll take, um, you know, five hundred for Licorice Pizza, and all these different record chains awesome. that were national. You know, started ordering. Mm -hmm. And this, so the head of the company, Mood Tapes, it was called, was on the hook for paying for the production of all these CDs, and he freaked out. Uh, okay. And he didn't understand the concept of borrowing somebody else's money to do that. Yeah. And it's like, it's, this is not like I'm a whiz-bang businessman, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not, and I, you know, I know when you, sometimes when you start a company, you have to get an investor. But, my God, you never get a better indication in the music business that when something's charted and it's like yeah. up to 14 and it's still got a bullet, you know it's going to go into the top 10. Yeah. But he was freaked out. He pulled the plug on the whole project. Wow. And it just it just vanished. And that's heartbreaking. It was it was but but it was really you know, the five minutes it was around was really fun. <laughs> it was really cool. And I sold a lot of records and it made some money and That's good. Is there a way to hear it? Yeah, I've got copies of it still. I can you know Do you have it I, on YouTube? I've got it on SoundCloud, on okay. my SoundCloud. Alright, I'm gonna go looking for it. You are gonna have to have a YouTube channel, you know that. <sighs> <laughs> That's the latest thing now. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I want to have a YouTube channel and I want to see if I can monetize it and all that stuff. But th this is one of the biggest challenges to me is to readapt myself to the today's music business I hear you. In, in such a way that you can make money from it. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's different. It's not like it used to be. Um, but anyway, that that was my brief experience as an artist and so for a while there I was an actual artist and for like I don't know maybe four years or so okay it was, so it was really cool and then I went around to some of the record labels to see after he pulled the plug to see if I could get on with another label because I thought I like this yeah this is the first time since I've been in the music business that I'd done my own music okay e even when I do my own music it would be for a film or for a TV show it's not really my own, it's just my interpretation of what I think is needed for the scene. Gotcha. So this was having the freedom of an artist and I'd never experienced that before. I've always just been a team player kind of guy, so, sure. uh, and never been in the spotlight. I've always been one of the guys in the band. A side man. Yeah. Yeah. So this was fun and I wanted to do it some more. Um, and I went around to some of the labels like uh, it's so really the really big one. They're still around, I think. Um, um, New AG. Uh, oh, um, are you talking about like um, Wyndham Hill? Yeah, George Winston. Yeah, and I sat down with with those guys, and they said, "Well, we know who you are. You know, we we're familiar with your music, but you know, and we really like what you do. We really, you know, so not to cast any aspersions on that, but you're not really Wyndham Hill, which was true. You know, uh, my stuff was very poppy." And their stuff is, was very different. And so I, I didn't get a deal with them. And then I checked with a couple of other labels that said they were ready to sign me, but they don't, they don't pay for the records. You finance your own record. Yeah. 
Right. Now that's the way everybody does it. But yes. back then, I thought, well, that's not why. I don't want it to work that way. I want, yeah. I want it to be like a classic record deal where they hand you a bunch of money and you go make the record. And then you pay them back through your residuals. Mm-hmm. And that's the classical way of doing it, but um, classic way of doing it. Right. And nobody was doing it that way anymore, at least not not little labels, not medium-sized labels. So right. I got... Seems like Rounder Records was sort of around that time period. Yeah. But, okay, okay. And Rhino and okay. all those. But I gave up looking for another record deal because I got distracted by just working. Going on the road, playing gigs, doing just te- doing all kinds of stuff. So I didn't really pursue it. I just let it slide. And it wasn't until everything kind of blew up here in Nashville that I thought maybe it would be neat to do a solo piano thing. I mean, I was a new age artist way back in the mid '80s, but I was electronic. Now, I mean, but I have no problem with going acoustic. That's fine with me. I love playing piano. So why don't I do that? So I looked into it and I kind of cobbled together this record and, um, you know, it it did reasonably well, but it's just mostly selling it to my friends and people I knew on Facebook and stuff. And and then I met a, a lady who is also way into the new age genre. She's very successful, has her own record label. And uh, I hired her to do promotion for me. And she said, why don't we why don't we give it a facelift, all new, you know, redesign the jacket, add a couple tunes, uh, change it around a little bit, remaster it, let's put it out again, because it never really made it to any of the radio stations, because uh, I, I, I still don't know how to do that, you know. I, gotcha, yeah. So she did it for me, I paid her, and, and she went around and she got it played on, I, I think it's on about 40 or 50 radio stations, Worldwide, it's in several countries. It's being played on airlines, and now it's on Sirius XM. And um, which channel? Which number? The Spa Channel. The Spa. Okay, I'll have to look for that. Um, the yeah, there's a song on there called "The Saint," and they play that one song. Nice. So now the trick is to follow it up. Ah. And that's where that brings us up to date. Okay. <laughs> so now your task is: what are you going to do with it? You've got a nice little thing happening, so what do you want to do next? Well, I feel a certain amount of pressure on me to follow it up with a record that that does at least as well or better as Follow Your Heart. But it's anybody's guess as to what it takes to do that. I don't have any qualms with hiring that promotion company again because that was really, that was perfect for me. It's expensive, but it, it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. because um, I, I'm like a Cretan when it comes to to doing my own promotion. I just don't do it well. And I want to spend my time on the music. And it's one of my my big, my chief complaints about the music business today is that too many people have succumbed to wearing all the hats. Yes. Because that's what the business seems to require of us. But you know what? You don't spend as much time on your music. It's not as good. Yeah. I agree. You may be great at promoting and you've learned the ropes and you know how to get things on a playlist on Spotify and you can do this and that and the other and you're going out doing house parties and you're, you've got your fingers in all, like 16 different things. Yeah. But when it comes down to really making a work of art, 
that used to be the whole ball of wax right there. I mean, it helps if you're a great performer, of course, but the record companies were big filters and they filtered out the only the best, the best of the best. And so you might get a record deal if they considered you to be, you know, worth the risk. Yeah. And we don't have that filter anymore. It's the Wild West. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I totally get what you're saying. And, uh, and it's the people who have the most chutzpah sometimes that manage to get their music out there. They're good at more than just music. Well, I, I find that I'm resistant, you know, to learning how to really promote and, and, and do all that stuff. And I think it's because I really don't want to give up the time that I spend on the music. And I only have a certain amount of energy that I can really devote anymore. I don't have boundless energy these days to do this like I did when I was 20. It's just I have to kind of be smart about how I spend my time. Um, So for me personally, it's, it's, I think, the best thing I've found so far is just to spend as much time as I can make the best product I can make and be willing to spend some money on a promotion company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to you kind of have to throw it throw it against the wall see if something sticks. Yes. So I you gave me when you walked in you gave me a copy of your um your CD. And so did you did you re-release this last year? Basically, it's called it's, follow, my, follow Your Heart. Follow Your Heart, and it's, it's really been released twice. There was a version one that had different artwork, and then when I, when I hired the promotion company to, to carry this, we, we redesigned it. I re-recorded, well, I recorded some new songs and put okay. them on there. I think there's one song I took off, and I uh, remastered it, and so that's it. And we got, we kind of, Gave it a second life. Yes. And I see the first song is Clockwork. That's the one I was listening to on the way here. And then The Saint, that's the one they play on Sirius. That's the last cut. That's just the one Sirius XM plays. But I really thought Follow Your Heart would be far and away the one that people would would choose as being the most commercial, thematic, uh, what have you. But what do I know? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Every station seems to be playing a different song. Interesting. Yeah, it is. That's the way that genre seems to be. And of course, we're in transition, like I suppose it always will be. Um, right now, CDs are being phased out, but they're still necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I.e., you can sell them at gigs. Yeah. But if you buy a new car, don't expect it to have a CD player. Right. Um, in fact, if you want to buy a new CD deck, like if yours wears out, like mine did, yeah, um, you're gonna have, you're gonna find there's not much out there to buy. Um, so you may ask yourself, why even make CDs? Why not just start releasing singles? And that has become a trend in, mm-hmm. in this one genre, of solo piano. It's just to release singles. But there are some radio stations that don't accept submissions unless mm-hmm. they're on a CD. Interesting. Wow. So we're just really in an in-between time right now, just still trying to figure out what's going. You know, and then that's how you started out. You were saying when we, when you first started talking, you were talking about how well, hmm, I'm in this place where I'm just you know, where do I go now? Yeah, I I think of it's almost like going full circle or something. 
I started off on piano, m making up little songs, not knowing what to do with them, and I'm doing the same thing now. <laughs> That's really cool, though. <laughs> I, I think it is. I guess, you know what, I've kept you a really long time. Well, do you think so. anybody's going to actually have the <laughs> stamina to listen to this entire podcast? They better. They better. I mean, don't you dare hit the stop button, anybody. Anybody that's listening. <laughs> you tell them. Come and get you. So uh, I've sure enjoyed uh, talking with you, Amy. And, you know, we our history goes back to Belmont, where we met. And uh, that was a wonderful time. And... We've both had a chance to kind of develop our things here in town, and um, it's it's always in a state of flux. Isn't that the truth? Yes. One week's crazy, the next is dead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a fun ride, though. I've enjoyed being a musician. Mm. Wouldn't have it any other way. And I've come to that crossroads quite a few times and I've always decided to stick with it and just keep doing what I do and you know what even the bottom line is you love music and you do that um, we have to be musicians because that's what we love doing and um, yes really all the other stuff is kind of consequential but it's not the reason we got into music right Right. Sometimes you have to face it, but sometimes you can ignore it. So yeah, that's that's exactly right. So uh, we just carry on. There you go. Well, thank you so much for oh, being with me. Oh, thanks again. I appreciate it, and I'd learned so much about you that I didn't know, um, and it's really good to know it.
Now I know who to talk to about many things. <laughs> so expect, Anytime. Expect phone calls in the future. <laughs> well, I'll, I will send you, um, I'll send you a recording of some of the latest stuff to see what you think. Oh, awesome. I'm sure I'll love it. I can't wait to hear it. Okay. Yeah. Some, some of it is a little offbeat. Oh, good. That's, the more, the better. <laughs> <laughs> Shake it up. Thanks, Amy. All right. Thank you. Take care.